Hi, Julia. This year's Bitcoin rally is being driven by wealthy North Americans and long-term investors versus more active traders three years ago. Data firm Chainalysis analyzes public blockchain data to see where and how much people are buying. In 2017, the bulk of activity was coming from Asia. This year, though, there are more net inflows from Asia to U.S. exchanges. There are also some signs that more high net worth individuals and institutional investors are getting in. We've heard from big names like Paul Tudor Jones, Bill Miller and Stan Druckenmiller backing Bitcoin recently, but it's also showing up in the numbers. Total accounts buying more than a million dollars worth of Bitcoin and then moving it off of exchanges has skyrocketed. That's up 180 percent from 2017 to this year. Analysts say that signals wealthy investors are loading up on Bitcoin and then moving it offline to store somewhere a little more secure. Remember, 2017 was also the year of the initial coin offering and some frenzied trading activity. Not the case, though, this year. Chainalysis looked at Bitcoin moving in and out of individual accounts. They found more people are holding it versus trading it. Analysts at the data firm also say they're seeing investors now buying through some more mainstream venues like Square and PayPal, as well as Grayscale's publicly traded Bitcoin Trust. The new demand has also affected supply of Bitcoin. Investors have bought an additional 2.9 million Bitcoin over the past three years, which may be one factor boosting prices to an all-time high this week. John, back to you. Shepard Smith here. Thanks for watching CNBC on YouTube. Earth to Mars lander report status, please. Mars lander here. Gravity device status effective. Oxygen status 98%. Any sign of habitation? Not so much as a, whoa there, horsey. What the? Cute, what is it? Oh, it's cute, all right. It couldn't be. Mars lander, what's happening up there? Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your co-host, Pierre Richard, joined with Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein. How are you, Michael? Doing well, patiently waiting for the next halving to be priced in. Yes, uh, every day it gets priced in a little more. And we've got a very special guest today, Pete Rizzo, uh, famous for his uh, Coindesk um, career and now uh, editor-at-large at Kraken and uh, contributor now to um, Bitcoin Magazine as well, which is one of my favorite journalistic publications in the space. Welcome, Pete. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, excited about the conversation and excited to dive uh, into the wayback machine of, of Bitcoin's early days. Yeah, so you've written a piece on um, one of the seminal uh, Bitcoin governance moments uh, that probably very few people are familiar with because it happened so long ago before uh, it happened before I was involved in Bitcoin. Uh, so all of this was very uh, interesting archaeology to unearth. Um, mm. And and also it felt like I'd already heard all of these arguments before because uh, history just repeats itself, right? So mm-hmm. uh, it makes sense to just go back to the 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 OG soft fork war. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess tell us about uh, what what happened and and why, uh, mm-hmm. and then uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, I guess I'll give uh, you know people who are curious to check out the article on on Bitcoin Magazine. You know why some of the things that you know attracted me to the subject, and then what I think is interesting about the article itself. So, in terms of subject matter, you know the piece really covers uh, what's you know now called I guess the P2SH uh, you know um, soft fork, right? So this was the first modern soft fork uh, that was uh, activated via minor signaling, right? So all previous forks before P2SH. Um, were essentially overseen by Satoshi, uh, him or herself or themselves, right? Um, so this was the first fork that was done um, without his, her, them, their leadership. Uh, you know, I think it offers some interesting examples of, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, early Bitcoin developers, their views differ from today in that lens too, which is interesting. Um, so on P2SH, uh, you know, it brought about easier multi-sig wallets, right? So um, byproducts of it, was it made, uh, it, it uh, solved an issue with the code whereby multi-sig uh, signatures were much longer, right? They were like 70 alphanumeric characters as opposed to a standard Bitcoin address, right? So it theoretically helped to make modern multi-sig uh, wallets more usable. And uh, I think we all know and love multi-sig wallets today. Um, yeah, and uh, it really marked the beginning, I think, of the divisions among the principal developers of the project, right? So I kind of look at P2SH, um, you know, somebody made this analogy the other day, and I think it's true. It's it's sort of the Hobbit to the Fork Wars is Lord of the Rings, right? If the if the Fork Wars period, um, you know, of 2015 to 2017, where the principal developers of Bitcoin were, you know, sort of locked in heated battles and and seeking to kind of, uh, you know, get forth their vision for the for the protocol, um, you know, this is sort of the early genesis of right that, right? It's it is that look back at, um, you know, what Bitcoin looked like when it was forming, um, and then, um. You know, it offers a little bit of like clarity into how Bitcoin was shaped as a philosophy and technology, right? Like, what did the early group of people think? Um, how does that compare to what we think today? Um, and I think what what really attracted me to it as a subject matter is, um, or I think what what I what I got out of it that I that I really appreciated is that. Um, you know, I think we have some new clarity on the individual people that contributed to Bitcoin and the specific ways they contributed, because um, I think this is something, and we can unpack this a little bit, but. Um, you know, Bitcoin is now a, you know, pretty well codified ideology. Uh, you know, people who believe in Bitcoin believe many things. Um, and many of the things that we believe today weren't what people believed early on, um, right? So it's an interesting uh, lens uh, to see where we are and where we've come from. Or maybe the way I read it was that there was a wider Overton window in Bitcoin and that Overton window has narrowed over time um, because th- even if we just think about like miners versus nodes, um, 
today I think it's 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 orthodoxy and uh, that that it's nodes that are in charge and there's not really anyone that I know of in Bitcoin that sees miners as being in charge. Um, they all they they forked off, right? Uh, mm. I think they're now on BSV. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, do do you want to talk about the, kind of that part of it? Uh, yeah, so I think what you can see from this uh, article, and uh, you know, invite everybody to to check it out in full, is that you know pieces of the Bitcoin philosophy that we know, and I've I've shared my theories about this with Pierre, that I, I do think we're getting a clear idea of what Bitcoin is as a philosophy and the component pieces of it. Uh, certain of those things emerge later, right? So the I think what Pierre was just referencing there was, you know, we have this idea that one of the foundational principles of of you know Bitcoin uh, design, and I think also Bitcoin maximalism is this idea that uh, you know nodes, right? People who are who are running and storing a copy of the blockchain, they're essentially sovereign participants of the network, uh, and they should not be disenfranchised in any way. And I think the interesting thing about P2SH. Um, is that idea was not there because it wasn't really needed at the time. There had been no, um, and I think there wasn't a way for them to anticipate that expression that I just gave being necessary, right? So a good example would be, you know, under Satoshi's original uh, design, um, you know, one CPU, one vote um, is something that he evokes the white paper. And you can break that down to, you know, miners are nodes and under the Satoshi model, you know, while they are, conceptually maybe different. It isn't really until the rise of GPU mining in late 2010 uh, and then over 2011 that, you know, these two parts of the network really become different. So nobody really had to understand them separately. Um, and I think with P2SH and the, and the argument over it, you really do start to see that some people um, you know, have a really clear vision early on that this is bad, right? That there's something uh, you know, or not wrong with Bitcoin. I don't want to use that word because, you know, again, I think we've adapted, but it's you know, our mental model for conceptualizing Bitcoin uh, needed to adapt to what the data was showing, right? And I think this is why if you talk to a lot of older, you know, Bitcoin developers, um, you know, they'll sort of invoke, um, you know, this idea that, that um, you know, we didn't have some of this con these concepts today, right? And they, they were emergent, right? They, they are... Um, you know, we, we ultimately came to believe certain things about the software through a scientific uh, observation of what was occurring within Bitcoin, right? This is, I think this becomes one of the philosophical breaks later on, uh, especially with the people who fall in the Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin um, cash camps is that, you know, people within Bitcoin will say, well, Bitcoin is a science project. We're responding to the data. We, we were looking at how this thing is evolving and we're making choices. And this idea that Satoshi's vision, quote unquote, is still relevant because this is science, right? This is something that was invoked uh, a lot during those days. And I think, you know, you see the seeds of all of this um, kind of come from that initial realization. And I think this happens with P2SH is that we want to make this really teeny tiny change to the blockchain to make a little tiny wallet address that'll make our Bitcoin more secure, uh, easier to use. And through this, uh, you know, attempt, we realize just all the complications that result from that, right? That no, well, actually, you know, multi-sig transactions, uh, yes, they were included by Satoshi, but no, they're not recognized by nodes. Uh, but know that you, uh, if you want to actually send one of these, you have to mine it yourself and add it to the blockchain. Uh, there's all these layers of complexity. So how do we make it so, um, you know, we can get this, we can uh, standardize these uh, addresses. Uh, and then how do we make it so that all, all nodes recognize it? Uh, what if those nodes don't upgrade, right? We start, we start dealing with all those questions that, that are derivative from that. 
Um, yeah, and I think P2SH, you know, it has a little bit of that, you know, going back to that Hobbit, uh, Lord of the Rings analogy, you know, there is something a little bit more quaint about the Hobbit, right? It's not, you're in this magical world, but you're just stumbling into it. And, you know, there aren't thousands of orcs killing each other, um, you know, which sort of happens later on. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's kind of what's interesting about the story, right? You see it, you see it start to form and start to take shape. And, um, yeah, cer certainly more than I had ever gotten. I think I got a, you get a picture of um, where Bitcoin was at at the time, just in its development. Well, one back and forth that I found fascinating was between Douglas and Thamos, where basically one side is saying, look, only miners can propose blocks, and thus that's the only thing that matters. And then on, on the other side with Thamos of saying, right, but non-miners can reject blocks, even if they can't propose them. Um, and we saw that exact same argument with Segwit2x of, look, 95% of the miners want to propose blocks that are bigger. Um, and then on the other side of Node2x and, and UASF of saying, well, look, it's, it's the nodes that are going to decide whether to reject the block or not. Yeah, and I think you see in this article that um, some of the things that we believe now to be very foundational to our belief in Bitcoin were back then in late 2011 fringe ideas or outsider ideas. And I think you also get to do something that we haven't really done before, which is we get to tie those ideas to specific people. Um, so in the case that you just mentioned, um, you know, this idea that nodes or, you know, computer instances that hold a copy of the blockchain provide some check and balance on, on miners as a profit motivated uh, part of the system, essentially doing some of the same, uh, the same work. Um, you know, we see that that idea really is articulated by Thamos and then also Greg Maxwell. And you can see that they really understood it. Um, and what's interesting about that for me is that you can see that that argument isn't really replicated by everybody else. It's not something that everyone knows. It's not something that everyone understands. Um, and this is, uh, you know, sort of when you think about why is it important to look back at, at, at Bitcoin's uh, history and, and why is it important to know these things? Um, you know, I, I think it gets to this idea that, um, you know, Bitcoin philosophy the, the Bitcoin philosophy we have today was, was not what originated early on. And if we really believe that we've come to the best articulation of Bitcoin philosophy and technical design, um, then we should want to understand like where these ideas came from, right? Who's responsible for them? What conditions were they shaped? And I don't see that as threatening to Bitcoin, actually. I see that as, you know, we want to celebrate, I think, the, the people who actually contributed intellectually to our current understanding. Um, yeah, and I would say in that example, that's a great, a great point where, you know, Thamos, I think, really understood that and he articulated it. Uh, and you can see from just looking at the logs of the time, right, because, you know, for researching this article, you know, really, we really went day by day and looked at IRC logs, you know, from this time period. So from, you know, October of 2011, when this starts to like, you know, April 2012, it's, you know, looking at like, what are people saying every day? Like, what language are they using? Are they saying how are they speaking? Um, and some of the quotes in here, you know, they're not just randomly selected quotes. It's like, this is some, in some cases, the only thing that we can find, right. That, that would suggest that this idea was around. Um, Cause I think pinpointing that with some specificity, again, it just gives us an idea of how Bitcoin evolved as a system. And I think it, you know, uh, you know, in, in today's Bitcoin um, conversation, you know, I think we've fallen in love and rightly so with this, you know, the Michael Saylor-esque view of, of Bitcoin as this 
immutable mathematical force that is like gravity or nature um, that can't be corrupted, that is that sets the pure mathematical economic laws for the world. Um, and I think that is true, but I think what this article you know, puts forward is that there were points in time where that was not true. And there were individual people who had to fight or contribute um, you know, to creating the conditions where that idea could live. And, you know, we might live in a world, we might have lived in a world where that idea didn't survive for, and maybe it is the unique contributions of these people uh, that we have to thank for that. And I think that's something, you know, that we should want to celebrate. And that certainly was, you know, uh, driving a lot of my interest in this work. One thing to consider um, is that some people believe that Bitcoin was sort of taken over by some kind of, you know, cabal led by Blockstream to just you know, take over Bitcoin and, you know, uh, completely change its nature. Um, as you point out, Bitcoin kind of has evolved. We've uh, sharpened our um, beliefs about how different uh, components of the network work together. Um, but on the flip side, you know, Bitcoin started out under a benevolent dictator, Satoshi Nakamoto. My understanding of the early uh, deployments, like, if I understand correctly, he actually pushed changes uh, that could have constituted hard forks uh, had anyone, you know, not upgraded. But at the time, everyone, there weren't that many people running the software, and it was very easy for someone to just you know, push out a, a new change and everyone goes along with it. So while there is that belief, you can also, uh, that there's a cabal that took over, you can also see this as chipping away at the dictatorship and people having to uh, come to grips with the true nature of decentralization. Um, mm -hmm. Amir Taki had a great quote in there about how like hey guys this is like a slow he had a hit a very long-term vision of bitcoin it's like we, we don't have to change this right now and if we're going to make a big change we should think about it and that's very different from a perspective of well i'm the dictator and this is what i want in bitcoin so we're going to make it happen um mm. which seems more of like a gavin andreessen uh point of view <laughs> yeah that's really interesting because i'd like to hit on that point a little bit so something that um you know i, I certainly think that you know we've mentioned uh, greg and thamos uh you know certainly another um character in the story or protagonist of the story or antagonist is is gavin andreessen who was the successor uh to satoshi and um yeah, I think as you were saying, we have, um, and even in the story, right, I think it, it's it's kind of set up where Gavin is the antagonist, right? He's the one who has this idea in his brain that we need easier multi-sig wallets. We need to give people who are losing Bitcoin the ability to save multiple instances, to, to you know, use the services like Acasa, like that we have today. Which is um, a great idea, by the way. The, right. the actual and vision itself is fantastic. Well, so this is where I think it gets really interesting because you know, you can be very sympathetic to that idea. And then you get to look at, well, how did Gavin go about that, right? And now you see that one of the interesting things about P2SH is that by modern uh, standards, it's it's unbelievably fast, right? I mean, the, so, you know, the story really takes place over, you know, two proposals. The first would be, uh, you know, so this idea that they, they could have easier multi-sig wallets, uh, you know, there was two inst instantiations of it. The first one was Opvival, uh, BIP12, which they, you know, basically almost pushed into production over the course of three months. And then at the last minute, they had to take back because there was a critical flaw in it, right? And that's that's sort of how our story starts, is you get to see that them realizing this thing that they're about to push, you know, could crash the network, they pull it back. Um, then you get, you know, Gavin sort of refusing to let this idea die, uh, overcoming, and then, you know, 
putting forward another idea, P2SH, which was, you know, uh, essentially the, the one that eventually um, won out. But you get to see then, you know, that there's a meeting two weeks later, they decide to implement it. And then, you know, a week later, they're voting on it, right? This is, this is something that's being pushed to the network for consideration. So you get to see how fast, you know, development worked back then. Um, but a note on Gavin, and I think the story doesn't do, um, well, you know, I think, it presents, I think, a complicated figure, and I think Gavin is a complicated figure, right? So um, the reason that we have the open developer process that is even portrayed in this article is Gavin, right? He's the guy who, you know, when Satoshi steps away, uh, he steps up, right? He's the one who starts coordinating with the community. He starts the GitHub, right? The idea that we have this open collaborative development process that we know and use today and is in a lot of ways thanks to him, um, but we do get to see him you know, you know, and then get to ask the question, like, to what lengths are you willing to go to change Bitcoin, right? Um, and I think, um, you know, Pierre just offered Amir as an, you know, Amir gets to be the antagonist in that story. He gets to say, well, we're moving too fast. Um, but we, we are invited, I think, by the story to consider, you know, what did we get from the energy and view that Gavin brought? Um, do we consider that bad, um, knowing what we know now and knowing that we've chose differently? And then, you know, who were the people who opposed him and what were their arguments and, and do we agree with them? Um, so I think it gives you an interesting lens, you know, if you really care about uh, Bitcoin and, and where we've ended up to, you know, I, I like to dissuade people from falling into, you know, the idea that people are, are villains and heroes in the story, right? I think Gavin may right. be a little bit of an antagonist in the story, um, but, you know, the idea that, like, we were even able to do this as a soft fork was his, right? You get to see in the story that, um, he's a contributor who was able to wow Greg Maxwell, right? Greg Maxwell says, wow, I didn't know this was possible that we could actually enforce a new type of transaction uh, via a soft fork. You know, you get to see the man that we were like respect, like in awe of this person who now we may not respect as much. Yeah. And it was actually, uh, I guess there was that clip from many years ago where it was Mike Hearn talking about it. He was trying to push Gavin to be more of a dictator and Gavin um, was not quite interested in taking up that role. Yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, it's an interesting perspective with P2SH, right? Was it worth it? Um, you know, people came to different perspectives on it, right? Um, you know, certainly multi-sig was still possible without this. Um, was it easier? Was it worth it? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I think certainly there are different layers to the story, right? And the, and the furthest back uh, lens is that through this, you, you really see how difficult it was to change Bitcoin, even that early on. And I think that was shocking to me, um, you know, because as you mentioned, you know, we have this idea that Satoshi early on, you know, acted without repute, right? He just would have had an idea and he would implement it, right? And the network moved according to his whim, um, it's actually, to me, I think it was quite amazing to see um, just how much thought and difficulty, how quickly that escalated, right, into a situation where even in late 2011, it was becoming very hard to change Bitcoin. Even at the state where this was the first time these guys were trying to do it, it was hard. What do you make of uh, Luke's opposition on um, like more philosophical grounds than actually like having a practical problem with uh, P2SH because at the end of the day, Luke was okay with, with that, that approach versus his. Uh, so yeah, I think another interesting character in the story, but um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that he didn't have a technical objection. So Luke did have a technical objection to P2SH. So just to step back there. So 
Um, you know, in the failure of Opival, right, this first attempt that they have to fix this issue with multi-sig fails, uh, they, they essentially come up with a new proposal, P2SH, which is ultimately championed by, by Gavin. Um, and Luke uh, Jr., Luke Tashir, uh, ends up coding an alternative called CHV. I, I think there is a technical objection in CHV, right? So because P2SH is essentially, you know, and, and I think what Luke really objected to about it was that it creates the conditions for essentially like the network sees an output that looks like P2SH. And there's like a special set of conditions that like only happen when you see that output. Uh, so from a programmer's mind, you know, it's essentially like you're introducing a new rule that's like only relevant in this one instance, right? It's like, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like, I would compare it to if you're a baseball fan, it's like if you, you know, get strike three and the catcher drops the ball, you can run to first, right? It's like one of these strange like <laughs> rules, right? And um, you know, Luke, I think, objects to sort of how unconventional it is and how it doesn't follow, um, you know, the rules of the, and, and the structure of the rest of the code base. And I think he equally objects to like how quickly they move forward with it, right? Because essentially you see that, um, you know, they decide not to move forward with OpiVal. And then like two weeks later, they're all of a sudden pushing this other, other uh, you know, piece of code. And that's also what Amir Takai objects to is this idea that things are just happening too fast, right? That you need to actually sit and think and consider all the edge cases that could be, that could be possible. Um, and I think, you know, there is a bit of fault to find with Gavin and Dreesen. It's certainly like that speed is like very much his product, right? The idea that, that Bitcoin should, should or needs to move fast. And it gets... To, and we hear this often as like protocol development versus application development, like that those are fundamentally different and thus they're going to work at completely different speeds. And maybe, maybe it has to do with their professional backgrounds that Gavin came from a world of graphics cards that are rapidly improving all the time and that you need to stay ahead of the competition of, you know, Radeon versus or AMD versus NVIDIA or whatever it is. Um, and also kind of the Silicon Valley startup mindset of we need to iterate and ship weekly uh, to, to stay ahead versus the protocol approach, which I think like Greg Maxwell, do you think Greg Maxwell is, is the protocol developer guru in the sense of like being the thought leader of protocol mm -hmm. development? Yeah. So it's interesting, I think, in the context of P2SH is that, you know, Greg is someone early on who, who very clearly like he understands the code at so many layers, right? There's a few, there's a few quotes in the article that I think when Aaron and I found them, you know, we just looked at them and we we're like, wow, like I can't believe that like someone thought that back then. And uh, it's like refreshing to see, right? So I think one of them was he, he gives this quote, um, you know, because eventually it sort of result, the, the debate devolves into, you know, do miners make the decision? And, and he gives this great sort of, you know, quote on IRC where it's, you know, it's not the miners who make the network. It's not the nodes. It's not, you know, it's not that it's not, this is not an election. This is not a vote. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is us, the developers making a proposal that we, uh, you know, think is correct. And then, um, you know, but essentially his argument was that, the, you know, the users are not electing this, the miners are not electing this, right? This is not how this is supposed to work. These are, there are checks and balances here, but this is not a public election. Um, so I think he was able to, to see that, right? Like, so he, and, and I think with, with P2SH, right? So you get into the idea that it was the first soft work that was activated by miner signaling, right? So they were essentially, um, you know, I'd come to the conclusion that, you know, 
there were now two types of network stakeholders. There were nodes and there were miners. And if you're going to try to change the network, you better make sure that most of the network is on board. So the easiest way to do that is to make sure that the major mining pools um, are going to update their software, right? So I think Greg was able to both see the simplicity and the like, you know, obvious convenience of that. He was able to also see, you know, the drawbacks of that, which is okay. Well, that now you're you're sort of letting this group, you know, maybe even consider itself as having a constituency. And later on during the fork wars, you know, they certainly do consider themselves, you know, a very active constituency. Um, so he was able to both see the convenience, he was able to see the problem, and he was able to come to a standpoint that in this case, he felt a certain way about that trade-off. And that's just a type of precision that you just don't see from other people involved in the debate at the time, right? He And, and I think, you know, you can kind of uh, extrapolate uh, from that, right? If he's the only person at that time who's speaking in this level, right, in this detail about the network topology, well, is our understanding of the network topology like largely based on what Greg thinks, right? Um, and I think this peels back some of the layers of, you know, um, who who is responsible for the Bitcoin that we have today? Because as you mentioned before, there's, you know, there's still a lot of people uh, within the ecosystem and the industry, you know, will hold on to these outdated tropes of, well, it's just Blockstream or it's Bitcoin Core, right? These like very useless, vague terms uh, that don't, don't really get to the specificity, like right here. You see that early on, these this was a group of individuals, and they were highly unique. Their their ideas were highly unique, and I would suggest they were still highly unique in some cases. Like if you were to remove um, one of them from the equation, it's it's hard to see how the outcome wouldn't have been totally different. Because in some cases, they were the only ones giving their views. There's no other person there. Right, and and it's not like Gavin was starting a multi-sig business either. Uh, you know, it's that's that often i'm like when people talk about these factions as if they are nefarious i'm like well what's the motive like how how are they going to make money off it and well it's actually like, funny. Yeah. actually he did try to start an escrow business before then and gavin was entrepreneurial minded actually early on in 2010 he spent half of his time working on bitcoin core and half his time working on entrepreneurial projects so he always sort of had that vision and aspiration, um, which is, which is interesting, right? It is something that is unique to him as well. And then considering that he was in the driver's seat, right? It's hard, you know, this is, again, it's like we live in a state and a time where Bitcoin isn't the subject to these people or the, the whims of individual people. But back then you look like, wow, you're like, wow, this is, this was highly the product of this individual and you can see it in so many ways, right? The idea that this debate happens and, and how it happens is almost a, clearly a product of Gavin. And, you know, I think we as modern, like current day Bitcoiners, um, you know, we have to kind of live with this dichotomy, I think, where, you know, we have created this network that is in many ways beyond uh, our individual influence, but it was true that at, at one time that that was, that was not true. We did need the contributions of people. Counter argument would be that, you know, there's a vacuum and Gavin <laughs> filled it. He just happened to be the, the body there at the time. It would have been someone else if it hadn't been him. And, but I, I do think that, let's say, let's say Gavin had not been there. So let's think about like, okay, who is the number two most, um, let's say, uh, public facing developer at the time? Would, would that be Jeff Garzik at this point or, or someone else? I feel yeah, like- Yeah, as far as I can figure it out, it would have been nobody. 
Oh, sorry. This broke up there. Mm. <laughs> um, as far as I can uh, tell it, it was nobody. Right. And I actually really did ask this question. There's some stuff that I've been working on since writing this that I, I haven't really been able to publish or do anything with. But if you look at from 2010, it's like Gavin emerges because Satoshi is not working on the protocol anymore. Right. By mid 2010, Satoshi is losing interest. And it's almost like the guy at the wheel of your plane is like falling asleep right? Gavin is the guy who's keeping him up, slapping him in the face and like making the plane keep going. Um, and, you know, he's the only one uh, he's, or he's one of the few with like SourceForge access, right? So he can merge updates, um, you know, and, and it does appear, you know, I'm starting to get some, some more detail here, but it, it does appear that, you know, so the Gavin Satoshi transition was in some way also orchestrated by Satoshi. There was some overlap and some behind the scenes discussions like between them. And, and the answer though, if you really look at the logs, there isn't anybody. There isn't anybody who was putting in that work to do what Gavin was doing. There are other people, like maybe a handful, who also were making code contributions. There's like Art Forts. There's this guy named M0MCHIL or something like that. And then there's, you know, a few other people, but you know, there's really there's not a huge bench. Let's just put it <laughs> let's just put it that way, you know. And isn't that the seed of his downfall though, right? Because then that turns into an ego trip. Well, and I think like this is, you know, what I've spent um, a lot of time looking at, right? Um, you know, I left Coindesk last year and I, you know, I left with a lot of questions, right? I had, you know, kind of helped build this like news source in the middle of like all this, uh, you know, larger things that were happening. I left sort of feeling like, you know, that my work like really didn't like wasn't meaningful within the context of Bitcoin. And that was like a really profound realization for me, right? I had written like 2000 something articles for Coindesk. I'd edited countless articles. I'd spent, you know, days and months like, you know, over this like news churn. And I think, you know, looking back at the fork wars and that period, it was sort of like, wow, like it's like, what did I miss? Like, why didn't I understand that? Like, why, why couldn't I understand what was happening between those people? Um, and like, ultimately I, I, I had to decide to go back. Like, right. I, I put it down for a little while and I said, okay, well, if I could pursue anything, I, that is what I want to understand. I want to understand what happened because, you know, again, you're, you're, you're writing stories, you're covering Bitcoin, you're flying around the world, watching these guys argue with each other. Um, you know, I think, I think we learned a lot from the fork wars, but I don't think in many ways that we've processed the full totality of that experience. So you know, I, I, I've been I've been trying to look for ways to like surface something, right? To start this conversation, because you know, the thing that I want to understand is I want to understand this formative period of Bitcoin. I think we we should want to understand that. Um, I think that we live in a point in time where we as humans can still try to understand Bitcoin. Uh, future generations might not be able to do that, right? They might not be able to ask. Um, you know, you think about it, it's like, we're asking why we have our financial system. We're asking why it's failed us. Like, imagine we leave future generations with the idea of like, they don't know what we did. They don't understand the choices we made. And I think with the P2SH story, it's an interesting kind of first ship in that direction. Cause it's like, okay, here's the story of this early developers. And then, you know, do you think that they, their decisions matter? Do you think their choices mattered? Certainly you can see that the things that they say, have become things that we believe and that are now very mainstream. So, you know, ultimately like my goal as someone who's been journalistically minded or, you know, like a, considers himself a bit of a storyteller is, you know, I think the more you can make this sort of inf information accessible, accessible, um, you know, the better it is, right? I think um, 
one of my critiques a bit with the current state of the Bitcoin conversation is, you know, memes, uh, you know, sloganeering, like they don't invite someone to be an intellectual participant in that conversation, right? You're saying, oh, if you don't run a, a node, you're wrong. Uh, and you, if you don't get it, then I don't have time for you, right? Um, well, look, I mean, I think that certainly I wouldn't say that like any work that anyone does is necessary for Bitcoin's adoption or it's, you know, economic proliferation. I think we're seeing that Bitcoin as the financial system is, you know, becoming super competitive with the traditional economy. It's rewarding uh, its, its economic participants year after year. It's getting really hard to foresee situations where that wouldn't happen. Uh, and it is true that Bitcoin is an inevitability. I agree. But where I would offer a slight, uh, you know, counter is that do we want to leave those people without a system that they don't quite understand or that they could understand better? Um, and certainly, you know, maybe I am viewing it a bit with my own, um, you know, lens of having been there, but, um, you know, I think we can learn a lot from these stories because, um, you know, certainly the wider cryptocurrency world doesn't seem to understand them. Uh, if you ask people who are working on other cryptocurrencies, um, what they think of Bitcoin's uh, philosophy around nodes, they certainly don't seem to have any, real intellectual opinion of it um so so i i'd say here that that i in your piece there are memes and sloganeering so my favorite (laughs) one in here is luke saying if you want a monarchical currency why not just use the feds usd which would be a perfectly fine tweet and you know might get a thousand likes today right right um and and so I, I, I kind of, I want to jump to the defense of memes, although I'm sure Bitstein will as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, memes are their own, you know, form of education. Uh, mm. You know, I, I gave now sort of, you know, infamous talk on, on this, but, you know, it does, it does pack in a lot of information that you can also uh, unpack and like come to understand is like what does it actually mean for Bitcoin to fix this? What does it actually mm-hmm. mean to run the numbers? And what's also interesting about it is you kind of start running with a slogan like run the numbers and you realize how applicable and deep that rabbit hole goes. And you start, I mean, you start thinking about it in your regular life. It's like, oh man, I should have been running the numbers on this. Um, <laughs> right. I think uh, Pierre's wife is a, a great example of the application of that meme outside of Bitcoin is like, you kind of look at your own financial details. It's like, you run the numbers. It's like, this is a bad idea. So there is kind of, uh, you know, we have to communicate as humans. Uh, we can't exist in a, uh, you know, purely digital protocol world where there's just, you know, uh, version acts and stuff like that. So we have to compress and decompress stuff. And I see memes as just an inevitability, not a... Uh... Sure. I didn't mean to take the anti-meme stance there. You know, I do believe that, that memes have been highly beneficial for Bitcoin, uh, but they're, you know, they're, they're beneficial in a certain way, right? They're, they're good at imparting the brute force of like a, a slogan, right? Or a truth, right? But they're right. not maybe as effective as if someone really wants to understand like how that truth was formed. Like, so... You know, a good example would be if you look at Bitcoin as a technical design system, you could say that, you know, within its philosophy, nodes are sacrosanct. This idea that, you know, uh, people who run instances of the blockchain are decision makers. They should never be, uh, their sovereignty uh, is ensured by the system and it should never be taken away by the system, right? That's a very specific outlook on the technology. And then you sort of look at the other cryptocurrencies and you're like, okay, well, 
that isn't there. That philosophy isn't present. Uh, I don't actually even know if they have a particularly well-reasoned theory on, on that, um, uh, that the lack of that. Um, so how do you get, how do you get some of these port, uh, points across? And I think the other way we can, we can approach is, is, you know, to tell, you know, to figure out the stories, like what, like, why did that occur? Like, why did it, um, you know, it's like, it's like, how would you make the case for nodes within the Bitcoin network without the fork wars? The, the, the story is instructive. Like the, the idea that nodes have the current place within the system design is a function of the event. It's almost symbiotic at some point. It's like, if, you, if it had never occurred, uh, and, and I think this, this becomes, some people see this, and I think people who haven't maybe spent as long trying to understand Bitcoin, they see these revisions to the philosophy or these like changes as like somehow like blasphemous or that, that something bad has occurred when really just like we adapted to different set of data, right? Like we didn't know before that that was true. And now we know it's true. Uh, but we know it's true because a certain event happened that validated that opinion, right? There was a science, there was a, we had a hypothesis, the hypothesis was correct and we've updated our mental model, right? Um, and I, I, I would specifically in this case cite like nodes and the fork wars because I, without that, you can, would the event have happened if we didn't need it to occur? Like, like or, you know, it, it's hard to tell, right? It, it becomes really difficult to tell um, what's absolutely true and what's, uh, what was an emergent truth from, from, you know, a unique set of circumstances and events? Yeah, that's well put. Um, Nassim Taleb's uh, application of hormesis comes to mind of um, essentially stressors to the Bitcoin system revealed its properties. And um, some of them, so like, for example, P2SH specifically, um, you know, it's going to, my understanding is that, you know, with Taproot, or sorry, even with SegWit, P2SH became uh, uh, obsolete. Um, and that it was a stepping stone, but perhaps one that we could have skipped in the grand scheme of things. Um, but maybe we couldn't have skipped. I, 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 I'm not in, uh, I'm not a, a core developer, so I don't know if they intellectually had to go through the process of discovering uh, P2SH, deploying it, learning from it, and then uh, moving on to SegWit and then moving on to Taproot. Because I, I also think Taproot re replaces a lot of SegWit stuff. But I, yeah. Well, so I'd actually say that there's, there's a pretty, pretty good evidence to suggest that what you just said is true. So right with P2SH, uh, they, they understood that they, they could soft fork, right? So they could, they could do this uh, specific type of coding where they only needed a majority of the network to enforce the rules. And because the, uh, the, the new rules didn't invalidate any old rules, it wouldn't disenfranchise any of those nodes. It'd still be part of the network. It wouldn't take, take two networks, right? But the, you can see here that with P2SH, their initial assertion of majority was 55%, right? So the, the activation threshold for P2SH uh, was that only a simple, quote, simple majority of miners needed to uh, signal for it. So today we, you know, you mentioned Taproot, it's, it's our idea for, of, you know, what majority signaling is, is 95%, uh, you know, so that's a, you know, and the reason that it has been adjusted upwards is because, you know, after P2SH, there were some, as I understood it, some network issues, you know, miners continued to kind of uh, create orphan blocks and, you know, our understanding of, of how soft fork should be 
um, deployed, like did advance, right? So we started with a, with a hypothesis that, you know, we only need 55% of the network um, and then people adjusted over time and we have our current version. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we, I think P2SH is, uh, it's the start down that path. What I think is interesting about it though, is that um, you don't see a lot of discussion about hard forks during this era. There's, there's kind of an immediate, um, you know, assumption here that like hard forks are preferred. And I would, I was surprised at that because I would have thought there would have been more sympathy for hard forks um, earlier on, because I think during the fork words period, you, you certainly had your share of advocates for that strategy, right? That this idea that Bitcoin was, was putting off a hard fork or uh, it was somehow, um, you know, delaying the inevitable of doing it, that it should, should do them more often to get better at them. I would have thought that earlier on the developers would have been more colloquial in discussing it, but they weren't like that. That conversation is largely absent from this time period. Um, and again, I think like the, you can almost look at P2SH where, you know, what Gavin really figures out is that, um, or sorry, Opaval, which is the precursor to P2SH is that you can essentially deploy a new command to Bitcoin using some placeholder command that all the nodes run. Um, and you could almost kind of like trick the network into, th into doing some kind of cool new thing, right? So you don't have to then deal with the fact that you can splinter the network. But at this point, I would argue that there's no philosophical reason for that. So you see that this discussion occurs entirely on a technical plane and nobody is making the argument that, it, that you disenfranchise or you somehow remove the sovereignty of those nodes by doing that. Those arguments come later. So, so you get to see that early on, it was it was almost like the technical convenience like of this design um you know made it a preferred activation method later on you get additional information right you say oh actually like this method is just way more aligned with our values like somebody's choosing to opt into bitcoin uh hard forks remove that choice from them we're no different than the traditional financial system if we're going to choose to arbitrarily disenfranchise people so you you get to see that some of these conclusions we came to were iterative and they were sedentary and that there are layers, right? And in P2SH, um, there is no, you know, there, there is almost no real philosophical node argument in the way that any of us would make today. You know, you get to see Amir Takai and uh, Amir Taki and uh, Luke Tashir, you know, make proto versions of that. And you, you mentioned, you know, uh, the monarchical currency one, right? That's a, it's a great, why not use USD, right? Um, that's a profound statement from Luke Jr. And I can say that looking through all that dialogue at the time, no one else is thinking about Bitcoin's development decisions within the context of how it differentiates it from the traditional financial system. That's profound. Like if you look at it in isolation and then you and, ask the question, why didn't anyone else think that? And then in the scaling debate, why not use USD became, why not use PayPal of like, Here's and I think Peter Todd is the one who 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 drew that, and yeah, it's 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 just uh, I, I I like that line of argument a lot of this direction of having well in this case it was, he was talking about you know having uh, Gavin as the monarch, um, but in any case a centralized uh, a, a centralized feature in the system, then we lose the distinction of being different than all of the other monetary systems out there. Yeah. And that, and that's what's interesting to me. I think was just how um, how singular that expression was from him. You know, and I and I think Aaron, you know, uh, Van Wordham, who I co-wrote the piece with for, from Bitcoin Magazine, we had 
a different perspective on this. And I, and I would say, I'm not sure which one of us is right. I think his tendency was to say, well, you know, we didn't see anyone else say that. That doesn't necessarily mean anyone else didn't think that. And, you know, my tendency was to say to Aaron, well, if they thought that, then why didn't they say it? Because like, certainly somebody would have said it at some point if they agreed with him, because it certainly looks a lot like Luke fighting this battle on his own. So if everybody agreed with him that Bitcoin shouldn't be like the US dollar, uh, surely you would have seen some more conversation about this. So, you know, either there's two answers to that, right? Either everyone agrees with him and it's so obvious that no one says anything, or the idea that, you know, Bitcoin's development needs to be considered through the lens of what separates it from traditional uh, Federal Reserve currencies or government currencies is perhaps a unique product of Luke and something that we have for him to thank. And I certainly wouldn't be able to invalidate that hypothesis from what I've seen. Well, I feel like Satoshi himself spent time distinguishing why Bitcoin is, is different than the fiat system. So I feel like maybe it was because it was obvious and that Luke was using it as a rhetorical device in order to, to win the argument. He was right. memeing here. <laughs> right, well, memeing in like a specific way where it's like, because he's, he's latching on to something that he knows everyone already knows, which is like, we're trying to differentiate from the USD uh, as opposed to presenting that as a new idea. Right. I, I do think it's interesting, though, like that how little other times it was evoked, right? Like, because the, the question then becomes like, well, this, it's either so pervasive that everyone thought it or it wasn't. And it was like kind of a singular thing. And look, I think the ultimate answer to something like this, and I think this is what's kind of cool about the work is like, we, you, I, I, I can't tell you definitively. I think some of this, like we get to come to our own impressions about things. And I think for me, that's a little bit what's like missing with like Bitcoin philosophy a bit. Um, you know, yeah, I think it should be okay for us to have, you know, within the, the, our idea that we're all talking about Bitcoin's design, we should be able to kind of be like, okay, well, yeah, this person's kind of stood for this and this person stood for that. But ultimately like, you know, these are complicated figures. I think what really gets me down is to see people on Twitter, you know, kind of engaging in this behavior where they, um, you know, try to make some of these people from Bitcoin's past seem like villains or, you know, you see a lot of allegations about, you know, Gavin Andreessen being like a CIA plant. Uh, and this is, you know, gone on for years. And I think, um, look, can I invalidate that statement? I can't, I don't have any information that would invalidate that. But on the same time, it's like, if you have to resort to vilifying people in order to prove like your point and the, the actual textual analysis or the understanding of their participation in those events like is misrepresented by those statements then like how sound is your intellectual point like what are you saying um you well know, you're just creating villains for the point of it yeah i mean this gets us into like toxic trolling right so um you could argue that luke saying why not use usd is toxic trolling right um and then all the way to yes you could argue in that same bucket would be someone saying that Gavin is a CIA stooge um, or that he deliberately wanted to destroy Bitcoin. Um, also toxic trolling. But I, I, I feel like the reason that they get such a hard time is not because of what happened here, but what happened in 2017, where I, it should have been settled Bitcoin ideology that miners were signaling their ability to support and upgrade 
not mm. that miners were voting on it or that miners signaling this upgrade is sufficient to do a hard fork. And I think that like, well, actually I think that's people uh, hate Gavin is because he f- tried forcing a hard fork. Well, I think what you just said is like the interesting thing about P2SH is it really leaves that question unresolved, right? In regards to miners. And I would point out one of my favorite like figures from this piece, whom I didn't know, I think we mentioned Amir Taki, uh, Luke Deshier, uh, Gavin, Greg Maxwell, Thamos. I think all people who kind of come out in the piece as nice characters. The other one who I didn't know was Tycho, the miner. So he was the operator of Deepit, which is one of the major mining pools. And I think he's really interesting. Um, to me, and I'd actually be interested if, you know, to learn more about him either through research or if anybody out there like, you know, somehow knows Tycho and wants to let him know that I'm, I want to talk to him. But, um, you know, his idea that like miners shouldn't be decision makers on the blockchain is like really interesting, right? I actually didn't think that this ideology would have been around. It's just, it's just really fascinating, right? Where it's the developers are sort of saying, hey, it's convenient for the mining pools to signal to upgrade. Uh, so, hey, all the mining pools like signal upgrade. And, you know, all of a sudden it seems like, you know, you have P2SH being pushed by Gavin, you have CHV being pushed by Luke, and it's like kind of unclear. And both of them are lobbying the miners to like do what they want. And this one miner guy goes like, why am I, like, why are you asking me? Like, I'm, I'm not the decision maker here. Um, I thought that the idea that he had that foresight, like in the ability to like, um, to put down power, right? Like, and it's interesting if you look at some of those um, like raw kind of exchanges, it's like, you know, Gavin at one point even goes to this guy like, hey, like if you upgrade to my proposal, I will, if you, and you lose money from like any like orphans, like I'll pay you. Like I will personally like reimburse your loss for like, uh, for upgrading to my proposal. Uh, that's insane. Like it's by today's standards, like you would never see somebody do that. Um, but yet when faced with that uh, economic proposition, this individual like had the wherewithal to say like, no, this is, this is ethically wrong. Um, and I think that that's also fascinating, right? Like um, to me, I would have never expected that. Well, the, the, because the opposite ideology definitely exists of on-chain governance of having and this is like the epitome of this, I guess, is Tezos, right? Of, of, of wanting to tie the block production and the block proposing um, with the protocol upgrades and development. And like, I guess uh, there, there's others that are also trying to pursue on-chain governance, but um, like Ethereum is anti-on-chain governance, right? Like uh, th- they, want, they want developer governance and then in Bitcoin, I feel like UASF was the um, abdication of developer governance uh, in the same way. Um, and the, it, because once you said, all right, the miners are not in charge. And then the developers said, hey, we're not in charge either. And <laughs> right, then it's like, okay, well, there's no choice other than the node yeah. operators have to be in charge. That's why I think Taproot is, is going to be so interesting. And I'm curious to see it play out because I, I, I do think that... Um, you know, we, we, we still kind of don't know what the right way is to upgrade a Bitcoin. We, we more know what the right way is than we did in, P, in the days of P2SH. And I think the article illustrates that. But I think, you know, there are some other funny things, right? Like the, one of the funny things is like Thamos being like, oh, well, only people who are like know a lot about Bitcoin should vote on this. So like, we're going to restrict this to like a two week vote, <laughs> like amongst like people, right? Where they, you know, at some points you see them arguing for like meritocracy, right? Like versus, uh, you know, uh, making a node sovereignty argument, right? So then, so now we have this idea that 
you know, okay, well, do Bitcoin developers like really actually agree with the node sovereignty argument or do they actually think that this should be kind of like a, you know, and I think Gavin memed this as like, you know, the, the Bitcoin core priesthood, right? Like that was essentially his, his thing as, you know, he saw them as being sort of like a Catholic church. Um, and, you know, his, his goal was to uh, do what he could to, to, to serve the users, right? That was, I think the story he told himself, but um, you know, look, I think, um, I think these conversations have been somewhat absent. I think we haven't really allowed ourselves to have some of these conversations because I think it's been a little bit too prickly to like talk about individuals and certain events, right? I think Pichu is one of the reasons I was attracted to the story is like, it's kind of old enough where, you know, a lot of these participants have like, you know, they're no longer really major figures in Bitcoin, uh, though Greg and and Thamos like certainly are, um, and Luke Deshier as well. Um, But, you know, it's kind of settled. You can look at it. but again, I still think it invites us to consider it's like what, you know, what Bitcoin do we have now and how was it shaped by these groups of this group of individuals who did find themselves in a place in time where like, you know, let's just say in 2011, they decided to start hard forking. Uh, is there a, ever a universe in which we have a nuanced opinion about node sovereignty via hard forks or soft forks? Um, I don't know. I can't, I don't think you could possibly answer that question. I think you can just get closer to understanding that what we have now is highly specific. And it certainly seems like there were times where things could have easily evolved differently. There's another constituency that, um, well, I guess it's within node operators. When people talk about the economic majority or what are exchanges going to do, um, you know, that's, that's another part where, you know, I, I have, I obviously I have, uh, new information now that I work at crack and I kind of understand, but it boils down to their exchanges are in the same position as everyone else. Because their first thing is what is everyone else doing? Everyone's asking, what is everyone else doing? Um, Mm -hmm. Throughout the ecosystem. And that's where we kind of get into the shelling point um, argument of look, Bitcoin governance is kind of just wherever people show up is, uh, is the Bitcoin network. Yeah, I think that was was it was interesting to see too that P2SH sort of went through those layers, right? There's the initially the developers decide that they want to do it, and then uh, Luke objects, and his outstanding objection causes the miners to debate it, and then the miners debate it, and then over time, you know, the miners then start signaling. So, and even though in this case it happens only over a couple months, and again, I think this is one of the other fascinating things about this is how quickly it all developed. Um, You know, it happens only over a couple months, uh, but. Um, you know, I think uh, you certainly see that the same general process that we have now is in place of different constituents, like communities, like coming to their own sorts of conclusions, and then ultimately people withdrawing, you know, certain, um, you know, other proposals that they that they put forward, and, and a gradual consensus emerges, right? Um, though I would say that it, it, the P2SH one is interesting because you know, again, a lot of the specific reasons why that happened. And I actually think that in Luke Deshier's case with CHV, um, you know, if you talk to modern Bitcoin developers, they'll look back at this time period and they'll say now that Luke's was obviously the better proposal and that if given enough time, Luke's would have won out. Um, and so if, if we believe that now, well, then why didn't it? And I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, uh, we did have a strong figurehead in Bitcoin back then. We did have this lead developer named Gavin Andreessen, and he did want to do things a different way. And the ecosystem did respect him and did want to listen to what he said and, and did trust him in some way to like do the right thing uh, for the code. So I think that's actually an interesting 
thing to look at in retrospect too is that, you know, it is true that this story is kind of told as a like parable within that Bitcoin developer community of like, this is what happens when things move too fast. Like you get a bad proposal that, that wins out over a good proposal. Um, but also the conditions for that were still there in Bitcoin, which is kind of fascinating in, in, in itself. Yeah, I, at the end, what I really felt like made uh, Gavin an antagonist was that his, his view at the end was that he got too much pushback. Yeah. And to me, that's like, okay, you know, as you said, he didn't get enough pushback. Um, but also one should, in, in Bitcoin specifically, one should never feel like you're getting too much pushback. Like it, either you can respond to it or not. Well, I think in that, and you get to see that Amir Taki is the, he's the one who makes that argument, right? And essentially no one else makes that argument. And uh, yet he saw a slow development process as a way to keep Bitcoin from being corrupted, right? Um, and I think, you know, modern day Amir, Amir Taki, you know, not maybe has fallen out of Bitcoin in some ways and intellectually is, is in a different camp. Um, but, you know, he is in a lot of ways, like, you know, one of the prototypical early, uh, not Bitcoin maximalist, but like, you know, he, he displays a lot of those characteristics of, of, of people today. Um, and I think it's interesting because, you know, one of the things with the mirror is that today he is very, he's not a Bitcoin maximalist yet back in the day, we have so few people in that period who said, or and then the way he acted then we find relatable, right? I think, I think in this story, he's highly relatable. I think the most relatable character is Amir because he's saying the things that we would say. He's saying like, hey, this is like too fast. Like the Bitcoin's not breaking. Like what's, what's going on? Um, well, something you know, this... I don't think a lot of people know about Amir was uh, he was the one who created the BIP system. Yeah. So he, he not only like thought that, you know, development should be slow. He was, he was providing uh, the process that we use today to be making proposals about how we can improve Bitcoin. Yeah. And interestingly enough, though, it's, it's, you know, as I, as you peel that onion back, it's sort of, um, you know, both Amir and Luke have really negative, uh, interactions with Gavin, right. Over the course, right. The, the reason that, uh, Amir will say that he started the bit process was that Gavin had asked him to leave the project earlier. And at the end of this P2SH, uh, war, you have that Gavin asks Luke to leave. Right. So there's this, and I think this is really what the developers, you know, one of the things that they end up sort of objecting to about Gavin is that, um, you know, he was a bit of, uh, you know, someone who uh, you know, had a specific idea for Bitcoin and the way that he quelled support or, um, you know, maneuvered things was a bit political. And that's something that I had heard a lot of, and I, and I hadn't really seen firsthand evidence of, and having looked at the primary information I could say is, is probably now true. Like, I mean, not that my understanding of that makes it any, uh, somehow special, but I think like, you know, there's a deep set of like links and like specific things you can say, okay, like, well, this, this seems like highly obvious at this point that, that, um, you know, and I think it's interesting that with Amir and Luke, it's like, yeah, they, they were outsiders, right? The people in this story who hold, who hold the closest things to our modern views were outsiders. Um, and that's interesting, right? Like, how did they, how did, how did they, the ideas they have uh, become mainstream? And I think they were better ideas, right? Um, and, and that's kind of a story that I see, you know, with the fork wars, it's like, you know, the, the better ideas did win out, right, over time. But it's also interesting in the context of this P2SH story that the better ideas were fringe ideas, they were obscured and they had to fight to survive, right? The idea that two of the principal people 
who, you know, in this story we relate to most, were both asked to leave the project and didn't. So it's this is an episode where Pete Rizzo defends toxic trolling. <laughs> um, well, you know, I don't know. I think like, you know, that's, it, it's, it's just interesting, right? It's yeah. just, to me, that, that's fascinating, right? You, we, we know that we live in a time where two of the people who, you know, maybe contributed most to like our modern thought could have not been here and it would have been very easy for them to leave. So I think that's a lot of them. Yeah, I, I specifically remember Gavin tweeting out a video of a, a, an hour-long talk about toxicity in open source projects and how you should get rid of toxic people in your project. And he was praising it. Uh, and I didn't realize uh, until now, until you, you're talking about um, him asking both of them to, to leave that, um, he, yeah, to me that's toxic, right? Asking someone to, to leave the project because they disagreed with you. Regardless of what tone they took or called you a monarch or, you know, somehow hurt your ego. Like, I, I feel like it, the other thing too is that we hear others saying uh, Bitcoin core developers are, you know, like an exclusive club that keep people out when I just think that's the furthest thing from the truth and mm. that the, that, that only ever got close with Gavin and he's not around anymore. Yeah, I think I, I think that's an interesting one because you know if you talk to other Bitcoin core developers today, they'll say that their takeaway from that story is like, well, they'll say, well, his influence was limited. You can tell because he he wanted these things to happen, and they didn't happen. Like he asked these people to leave, and they they stayed around, right? So his his influence was a little bit limited, but it still occurred, right? And it still invites you to ask the question of like, okay, well, you know, maybe the maybe Bitcoin did persevere, and maybe the ideologies we had did persevere, and like maybe it is the result of people who made tough decisions, right? Who decided to stick around in adversarial situations because they believed like a, something, you know, greater about what was being aspired to, right? And I think Amir in that case, like, you know, it, what was his crime, right? Like, I mean, the, the reason that he was asked to leave was that he had gone to a conference and, and Gavin felt too strongly that he was uh, suggesting that Bitcoin uh, was, you know, a system that could compete against, governments and that, that should be advocated as a, uh, you know, a way for people, an alternative to those systems. And that's exactly what we believe today. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just find that fascinating. And I think it, it increases my conviction in the ideas we have. And I think that's for, for me, that's what I personally, personally found lacking in the memes and personally found lacking in those things. It's, it's not that they're wrong, they're correct. But um, for me, it was lacking a little bit of like, okay, well, you know, to see that an idea has persevered through so much, you know, um, really just makes me think it's that much stronger. And I, and I think, you know, um, you can almost look at this article as sort of an exercise in myself of trying to like find the Bitcoin philosophy and like see if I can disprove it or, or find something else. And I think ultimately we find that the Bitcoin philosophy we hold today is very robust. It's, it's lived through a lot of adversarial conditions. It's persevered through uh, situations in which people tried to do everything they could to, to destroy those ideas. And the, the idea that Bitcoin is predicated on such a strong set of ideas, like to me, that's awesome. Like that, that, that increases my confidence in Bitcoin and why I increasingly find myself, you know, kind of pushed in the Bitcoin maximalist camp, right? I think that, um, 
you know, people want to talk about like me personally or my record, right? It's like I was the editor of Coindesk during its formative years. I had to, you know, I am the person who participated in the decisions that led the publication to, you know, cover cryptocurrencies in general to cover what was going on in Ethereum. Um, I'm probably the last person that like I thought would have ended up in the camp of Bitcoin maximalism. Uh, but, um, you know, at some point you have to, you, you know, you, you do the work to validate it. You know? And for me, this was like kind of the personal journey of that is I, you know, I needed to kind of see for myself that what I was being told by people was the product of like things that were true. Um, right. That these ideologies that we had were not just political conveniences of the time. That's the missing piece for me during the fork wars. Right. It's like, I, I couldn't tell what people were saying was accurate or whether it was a political convenience. And I, and I didn't know in that situation, making the coverage decisions that I was, that if I was being manipulated, like, right, as a journalist, you never want to be manipulated. Um, you know, and, and, you know, people want to talk about that era and what was done or what wasn't done. Um, you know, all I can say now is that I've, I've gone back and I'm, I'm trying to do the work. <laughs> I'm trying to, um, you know, come to the conclusions that I felt that I didn't have then, right? Um, and I think for me, it was, it was kind of the personal journey of like, okay, well, um, what was it that I saw during that time period? And, um, you know, can I actually kind of help people also understand how these ideas came to be and, um, you know, celebrate and validate them as well? So I'm curious to know, in 2017, did you after the New York agreement, did you think that the hard fork would be successful or a failure or just didn't have an opinion on it? Uh, I did not. That's a good question. I, in that case, uh, did not think that it was going to be successful. Um, I personally, by that time, was in the camp of uh, the Bitcoin core crowd, I guess you could say. I mean, there are some specific situations with specific people where I tried to convince them not to do certain things that are probably <laughs> rather not discussed. But look, I think during that time, I, I think, you know, I, I did what I could and I tried to make Coracoin a forum for everyone to espouse their views. I, I think for me, that was profoundly painful in retrospect because I think if I had understood enough to what I do now of, of like having, I, look, I was always sympathetic to Bitcoin, the Bitcoin core people. I was all, I always did my best to try to understand them. And I think I did more than other people to go out of my way to try to understand them. I spent many hours with B2C Drac, like talking to him about what we were doing with journalism, where that's a phone call that I don't think a lot of other journalists would have taken. Like, you know, that was, that was it. But ultimately like, you know, doing a good job within the context of your job and doing a good job within the context of Bitcoin are two different things. I don't think I did my job the best I could have within the context of Bitcoin. And like that, that was a tough thing to think about for a long time. You mean in, in terms of communicating Bitcoin's value proposition or like, wh what do you mean by that? Or pushing back on what industry people were saying, like uh, whether it's uh, blockchain.com and, and Bitco, I think was talking. Yeah, there, there was a lot more evidence to suggest that the things that, um, you know, the, the large, the companies uh, wanted to occur or thought about um, how Bitcoin development worked, um, you know, were inaccurate. Like, so a good example would be like P2SH does a lot to establish that the idea that miners were in charge of governance, like should have been disproven a long time ago. It's just that these things were very buried and obscured. Um, and in an extent, like a lot of this information is still very inaccessible. And I think that's something I'm trying to do with my work now. And, and this story is kind of a first step is, 
I don't think everyone is going to go and look at the IRC logs like me and Aaron did. I don't think they're going to go every day and read every post on the mailing list, <laughs> like from that period. And I don't think they're going to piece it together. Um, but that said, I do think the value of that is that, you know, from my standpoint, it's like I've come to believe that Bitcoin is, a, is uh, that Bitcoin philosophy is like very well, uh, very sound. It's very well constructed. And that a lot of the things that are keeping people out of that camp are just that some of this information is, it's inaccessible. If you didn't live through the fork wars, like would you have the same opinion that you did about Bitcoin? To me, the answer is no, I, I would not. To me, it took, it took the experience of seeing all those grown men trying and striving to change this thing. And in some cases, like breaking down in actual tears, like, you know, to, for me to understand like how powerful Bitcoin was as a technology, is that something you can ever impart to by giving them a meme? Like, I don't know, like, right. I had to go watch that happen. Like my conviction in Bitcoin is proportional to watching that. And my, my conviction in Bitcoin is proportional to me watching Adam back stand in the middle of a conference with a whiteboard in 2017 and write, what is Bitcoin question mark on a piece of whiteboard and then turning to a group of developers who said nothing, <laughs> you know, because I don't know. Uh, yeah. you know I think the, the important thing, thing memes, memes are good for uh, propaganda purposes, uh, but you do need to run the numbers on the memes. Yeah, there you go. I like that. Uh, yeah, and this was like, you look, uh, you know, it was my first collaboration with Aaron, which, which I thought was super cool, right? We were people were, you know, competing for stories about what was going on with Bitcoin back in the day. And I, you know, I think we've talked over the years about, you know, the need to preserve some of the things that we saw, because again, you know, I would go back to what I said earlier in the conversation that it is true now that I think Bitcoin no longer is the subject of our individual like wants and our ability to enforce change on the network. Um, but I don't think that was always true. And I think that people who were there and who lived there, we know that. We know that, that what we have is the result of, of individuals and events. Um, and I think if we allow those individuals and events to continue to be mysterious or like not well understood, then I don't really think we're doing a good job. And I think that um, I do a good job of like advocating for what we believe. And I, I think you really can see like the larger cryptocurrency community as like a, as a somewhat of a symptom of that right it's like if they knew or understood bitcoin and like like if they knew their design choices were so different like uh, would they have made them like i don't like sometimes i don't even know because the cryptocurrency community is so caught up in its own random you know bullshit on a day-to-day -day basis um you know, I look at Bitcoin and I see a, a, a really elegant philosophy. I see that Bitcoin as, as a system is sovereign. I see that nodes are the, uh, you know, uh, physical embodiment of that sovereignty. I see that soft works are a way not to disenfranchise that sovereignty under any conditions. And I see the sound money principle as an explanation for why the economy that is enforced by those three uh, values will continue to outperform traditional economies. I can't break down Ethereum on that level. I can't break down XRP on that level. Um, you know, this is a running the numbers, right? So I think that like what, what you're getting at, which is a really good point, is that while we use this node software to verify the blockchain data according to the protocol rules, we should also be verifying the protocol rules and the process by which they have been modified. Which would bring me to my next question is, why not start earlier, right, than P2SH, right? The, you, why not start with 
as far mm. back as you could. Well, you could go into the footnotes of Satoshi's white paper and trace it back. For uh, yeah, a good yeah. example is I, I have started doing that. I think that I got pushed into doing P2SH because I think the fork wars were so monumental. And I think you really had to kind of know some of the groundwork for like how those relationships were built, right? I think you can see like the distance between some of these people at this point where it's like Greg Maxwell and Gavin are still getting along. Like Luke is still kind of like on his own, right? You, you, you sort of need the prior context, but I would argue that P2SH is kind of the first formative event. It's the, it's the first event in Bitcoin's history in which multiple parties and multiple people have to to express themselves within the immediacy of time. Right. And that results in them saying and doing and revealing that they feel differently about Bitcoin. One of the interesting things is that, you know, and this is research that I still haven't really done anything with, but I'm, I'm starting to develop is that, again, it's like, you know, the, the, the community really isn't that big. You know, it's, it's almost like, you know, when Gavin took over Bitcoin, and this is an interesting thought that I've been like chewing on a lot lately. It's like, you know, when he really kind of assumed the developer uh, reigns in May of 2011, Bitcoin was already over a dollar. Like it was already over a dollar without a robust open source developer ecosystem. It was a it was over a dollar with just a few guys kind of like doing code. Like, you know, I found that you, you know, you used to have to go through Satoshi. Satoshi merged all the changes. You used to have to post on the forum in a certain way if you wanted Satoshi to merge your changes. Or you had to ask Gavin and IRC to merge your changes, right? So I think YP2SH is that really prior to that, there's almost isn't really that much. Um, you know, some random data points, like I have really been excavating like the early parts of the Bitcoin forums, right? So the first month of the Bitcoin forum being live was uh, December and January of 2010 and 2011. There were and 30... Is this was, specifically Bitcoin talk or the forums that came before it? Those are the forums before it. Uh, okay. So, you know, there were 30 unique users during that month who commented on the board. The community is still small a year later, right? You can, you can start kind of putting some data points on like, well, how big is Bitcoin's footprint? Like the idea that 30 people were commenting on the forums, okay, maybe you can do some back of the math. Uh, you know, maybe there's five people for every one person who commented or 10 people. You can, you can get some like relative sizing here. Um, I think what's really obvious is that like prior to 2011, like there, it's the dark ages. There's, there's not really anybody there. The argument that anyone would have been considered as a successor to Satoshi other than Gavin is exceedingly weak. I can't find anyone who would even have been considered in that conversation. Gavin through his own, you know, just being a person in the world doesn't really even take his duties super seriously until May, 2011 when Bitcoin's over a dollar, you know, everything's going on. That's when the Bitcoin mailing list starts. Um, and, you know, that's when the developers start coming together right on the mailing list. And P2SH is the first result of that work, right? So you have, you know, in October of that year, that's only four months from the start of the, the mailing list. This is the first result of that collaboration. And so what's interesting about it is that if this really is the start, like, right, this is, you know, we have, this is the first glimpse we have of the developer community, the first time we have a, a developer community. Uh, you get to see that group struggle with all these things that we're talking about now and that we know a lot about now, um, but just back then didn't, right? They didn't even know that like softworks were, they didn't call them softworks. They didn't really know like what they hadn't thought about them enough to know what they were, right? Like they, um, these were people who were living their lives, right? I think that's the toughest thing to, to doing this research is you really have to um, understand that, you know, these guys didn't, they weren't showing up for each other's barbecues, 
they didn't know who had kids. Like they didn't talk to each other. They didn't know Matt Corrala was 17. You know, they didn't like, you know, they didn't know, <laughs> like they didn't have any real relationship with each other. Um, and I think that that part is interesting as well, right? I think these people were brought together by the software. The fact that we have an open source developer group was probably spurred on by the economic success of Bitcoin as an economic unit. Um, and that's really interesting to consider that that might be a possibility, right? That, that the economic success of Bitcoin as a monetary unit actually maybe predated the fact, the idea that we had a developer community. Um, yeah, one, one telling quote was, I would like to remind everyone that we are messing with a $20 million <laughs> thing. $20 million yeah. thing. I love that one. Yeah, that's a great quote. Um, yeah, and look, I think that... Um, you know, so you ask like why this one? I, I think it's really the first event. It's the first event where there's enough stakeholders with enough differing ideas about what Bitcoin is or should be uh, that the fractal nature of it gives you a lot of data about what the current understanding of Bitcoin was at the time. So I think for me, like, you know, what I like about the story uh, is is just that it, it kind of shows those people and those characters um, you know, just kind of riffing off each other and, 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 and you know, it, it's sort of uh, emerging like a random ice crystal in the universe of, you know, something that happened. This happened. This is the way it happened as far as we can tell. Um, certainly if anything is wrong in this and anyone wants to come and, you know, explain, you know, show me something else or something that's non-public information, you know, I do believe that Aaron and myself have looked at pretty much every conceivable thread that we can find on this. Um, you know, we're happy to add or, or update this, right? I don't know if we're doing journalism here or history or or whatnot. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're excited to continue that conversation. Um, you know, for me, it was something like I wanted to showcase this work and I want to, I, I'm curious to get some feedback from people on how they respond to it. And if they agree that this is something uh, that is interesting because yeah, for, for me, I do want to know, I, wa I want to know, um, you know, as much as I can, how the values that we have were formed and I want to be able to show other people the work that we did to, to actually get there. What's next? What, what, are you going forwards or backwards in time? Uh-oh, we froze up. I think there was a hard fork on this. Oh call. no, the network split. Michael, did you have another question before I does wrap it, matter, it up? Does it matter now? <laughs> does does what matter? I mean, if I if I have a question, it can't be answered. Oh oh yeah. Well, okay. Did you have a remark, a reaction? I mean, I think I think this was fantastic, and I I hope uh, Pete and Aaron write more uh, on this topic, uh, like just on this thread of uh, kind of. Bitcoin archaeology and, and piecing together these stories from the past. Hey guys, can you hear me? Yep. Um, so the last question was, is, is SegWit next as kind of the next big uh, fight? I, look, I would love to do SegWit. I've spent a long time uh, building up very many documents and things about that time period. I think, um, you know, there's a lot like you know in that story um you know going back to the lord of the rings analogy it's a big story um well it's you know, literally me, the the first email back to satoshi is about scaling yeah so it's yeah. from the beginning 
Yeah, you really have to have that full contextualization. I, I can say for, for my part, you know, I intend to keep writing in this direction. I see this as kind of like a first step for myself of, you know, I, I, I you know, I've, I've been searching for something where, as I said, with, you know, Coindesk and not being satisfied with that work in the context of Bitcoin, it's, I, I, I do, I, I have come to believe that Bitcoin is, you know, um, an important thing in my life. I, I intend to live the rest of my life with, with Bitcoin in it, which I think is an interesting like thing to come to as a human being. Um, and I ultimately wanted to do a work that would be important for Bitcoin. Um, and I think, you know, um, drawing on like what experience I had, it's like, you know, I was there for those things. I understand them to some extent, uh, but there are many players. Um, you know, there are many characters in that story. Uh, I would love to understand them all. Uh, if you were a part of that story and you want to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. Um, you can get me on Twitter at uh, Pete underscore Rizzo underscore. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm excited to help, you know, I think do the job of, um, you know, preserving this history and preserving, you know, really just the origin, like, you know, the origin of these ideas, right? Like um, how do we go back and explain this thing that we've created? Um, and, you know, I think that uh, that for me is kind of what I'm working on. Wonderful. When you write the uh, grand Segwit saga, you know, I'm sure it could be its own, you know, full book. I'm just looking forward to the chapter on the tears. I really like that part. <laughs> oh, the grown men part. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that um, the question for me about the four quarters is do we live in a time where, people are willing to come forward and be honest about what happened. Um, I think that, um, you know, I, as I hope this work like puts forward, it's like, you know, to me, I think like we, sh we should want complex characters. Like to me, the idea that Gavin Andreessen was someone who loved Bitcoin, um, but ultimately was, you know, unnecessary to its furtherance, like, and, and wasn't able to continue to participate in its development. To me, that's more interesting than him being a villain. I don't mm -hmm. think Gavin is a villain. I don't think we should want Gavin to be a villain. I don't think Gavin serves any purpose as a villain. He is, he is not a villain. It is more interesting to consider Gavin as someone who deeply loved Bitcoin and just came to ideas that ultimately weren't uh, the right choice for Bitcoin. You know, I keep going back and I ask myself a lot about Gavin. It's, you know, and I, you know, I did have a conversation with him not too, you know, pretty recently where I, where I essentially, you know, was talking about this idea of Bitcoin's intrinsic value, right? Gavin is a guy who, you know, he, when he showed up online, Bitcoin had no price, right? There's nothing. There's no exchanges where Bitcoin was trading. Uh, and through his own human activity, uh, his willingness to recruit people, his willingness to inspire people to create services around Bitcoin, like his faucet. Uh, he gave away so many bitcoins. Absurd. Right. You go on there and you get you know whole bitcoins. But his his human uh, endeavor increased the, the you know created Bitcoin as an economic unit and created the network that allowed that to happen. So if you ask him, does Bitcoin have any intrinsic value? Gavin Andreessen will look at you like you were this craziest person who has ever lived on planet Earth, because he lived at a time where it had no value. <laughs> so he can never understand that. And so what does that say about the idea of Bitcoin's intrinsic value? C can it be true that Bitcoin has intrinsic value? 
in the way that we understand it today, and I think the way that we understood it today is like, look, if you take the Michael Saylor definition of, uh, you know, Bitcoin is the way that we're going to coordinate human activity across space time for the rest of the universe, because it is the unbreakable natural law of economics we've been seeking for generations. If that is true, then how is it that this man <laughs> like was signed online when Bitcoin was worth zero dollars? Like, and how is it not true that his human in energy did not create the conditions under which that was possible. There's an inherent uh, contradiction in that. And we, and we might actually have to accept that contradiction. We might actually accept both those things as being true and accept Gavin as tragic, like for having the experience that he had and accept ourselves as, as people who are participate and can honor the Bitcoin system as we see it. Um, I don't think that has to make Bitcoin uh, Gavin a villain. Um, I think it makes him complex. Yeah, I, well, I think that also, uh, I, regardless of, you know, if, if there's a better argument to be made that Gavin was a villain, just to take on uh, the thought experiment either way uh, with, with any, any person that we choose to uh, look at that's kind of no longer with us, if we instead cast them as just, you know, they, they're a complex character, um, it does raise self-reflection, which is just like, well, how do I make sure that I don't become that person? You know, how do I make sure that uh, my love for Bitcoin uh, does not end up leading me astray to where I'm not even, you know, a participant within Bitcoin? And I think that's mm -hmm. a rather, you know, that's a, it's quite a heady uh, question to ask. And uh, well, it's, it's cause. No, I, I love that question. I mean, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that is still like a personal struggle for me is, um, you know, am I a Bitcoiner? Uh, you know, there's, there are some people who would call me that I wouldn't pretend to call myself that I don't know uh, who is I don't use that word as liberally as other people do. I am someone who uh, certainly made choices like in the world and like uh, my choices might have had some impact on like how people, uh, you know, read information about Bitcoin um, or consumed information about Bitcoin. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think we that is an interest. That is like the thing is we all have to decide like what that means for us. And yeah, you're right. Right. We have to make decisions knowing that um, we could be corrupted in the same way that these, these other people were right. Um, that, um, and, and what is it? What, what was that tragic thing? Like, what was the, what was the thing that led them to that mindset? Um, you know, to me that that's kind of a big question as I look at some of these characters and events, it's, um, and that's the thing that I continue to find with Roger, right? Roger loves Bitcoin, loves it, his whole life, you know? Yeah. And, but how, and how he ended up where he did, how we ended up where we are, um, I still think this is very confusing to people on the outside of the space, right? This continues to be why Bitcoin is so misunderstood, right? Um, even as we within Bitcoin come to understand it and we come to ways to articulate it, uh, you know, we're always going to be in a situation where we need to explain ourselves to the, to the rest of the world. And I think, look, storytelling is a way um, that that occurs, right? Um, you know, uh, what would Jesus have accomplished without the Bible? I don't know. <laughs> you know, there, there need to be uh, some literature for, you know, uh, Christianity to emerge. So, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I, uh, I continue to be interested in this. I continue to look forward to chatting with people who are interested in this. I continue to invite people to not think about this as like a threatening thing. I, I think we should, should have a conversation about the people and events who shaped Bitcoin. I hope that people find this article, uh, which is going to be on Bitcoin Magazine, as uh, 
interesting example of it and um, a way for them to get closer to the people and ideas that, um, you know, they might find that helps, uh, helps them understand their own personal Bitcoin journeys. Awesome. Well, on that note, I think we can wrap up the episode. Um, and we're going to have you back on uh, when you write your next article with Aaron or, <laughs> or with an intern or uh, with, with yeah. whoever. Um, and yeah, thanks for the very interesting conversation today, Pete and, and Michael as well. Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, if anybody wants to check out the article, it'll be on BitcoinMagazine.com. I also want to apologize to the noted audience for how few podcasts we've been doing lately. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll try to be more regular uh, as well. Right, Michael, can we commit to that? Yes. Um, awesome. All right. Well, uh, until next week. All right, Michael, we'll see if we can do next week. Yes. <laughs> might be wildly unrealistic. Some, uh, but... uh, you know, famous last words, but uh, you know, we're going to try. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, if Bitcoin's going to be hitting all-time highs this year, we need to jump on the bandwagon and get some engagement, right? Yeah, yeah. All right, cheers, bye. Make your luck. Yeah. You, you got to make your luck. And if you make it, if you keep... If you keep putting forth the maximal effort, that luck's going to come. You're going to make your luck happen, yeah. you know? That... You know that actually when we when we came when tasking a bruiser came home from Iraq There was there was you know people were like oh you guys got super lucky on that deployment because we got a lot of action right mm-hmm. and there was two like immediate thoughts behind that was number one like hey You know first of all we lost our bros like there are nothing lucky about that was the first immediate thought in my head it was like hey man like cuz cuz the bottom line is seals want to go into combat mm bad and that's just a broad statement and so when we came home had been in a lot of combat and killed a lot of bad guys and people were kind of saying hey you guys got lucky and and again the first thought was hey man you if this is luck i don't want it the second thought was just like the same thing like oh we got lucky we didn't like crush ourselves in the workup and try and be the most you know prepared we could be and then yeah. get overseas and then form relationships with all the conventional forces and do good work for them and continue to you know just get go as hard as we could the whole time no that didn't have anything to do with it it was just luck and it kind of yeah. fell into our lap yeah. but you know of course just nod your head and say thanks man appreciate yeah. it yeah good times yeah. uh, so luck is definitely a part of it a little part because were we was I lucky to be in Ramadi because hey, I could have deployed a year later and a year later Ramadi was pacified So is there luck there? There absolutely is mm-hmm. so I don't want to sound arrogant, right. but Luck is a part. Yes. It's like foot locks. It's like heel hooks sure. They're a part of the game. Yeah. They're not a game changer right. they're, they're a part of the game. They're not a game changer. We we had a group come in this is Back in the day, a group came in of guys that were known for foot locking and heel hooking. And what they didn't, they thought we were jujitsu guys, normal jujitsu guys, but we weren't because we were Dean, right? So we were foot locking, heel hooking all the time. And these guys came in, and immediately they were going for these are the kind of guys that would go. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember this time period in jujitsu. It was like immediate; they're going for a foot lock, like just diving for it. Yeah. 
but they didn't know that we did footlocks all the time and you weren't going to just grab a footlock on right. Dean Lister or me yeah. like that this wasn't going to happen mm-hmm. and it kind of it, then all of a sudden they didn't have the rest of jujitsu didn't yeah. have the rest of the game so yeah. then it was not good for them yeah. because they only had this one dimensional game and that's what taught me that footlocks are important but they're not more important than a choke or a guard pass yeah. they are definitely part of the game you can't leave out but they're not a game changer and you see that now now that you see everyone broadly getting good at at the whole leg locking foot locking heel hooking game now you see it coming back around where you have to have the rest of jiu-jitsu as well yeah like even even as much as like a year ago it was like oh this guy got this crazy heel hook and the guy tapped and he didn't know what was happening mm-hmm. that very rapidly changes into okay the guy went for a heel hook the other guy got out now we got to where are we back to we're back to the jiu-jitsu yeah, yeah. so same thing. Luck is a factor. It's not the factor. Yeah. 